Hello to our listeners and welcome to Be Wise, a podcast sponsored by BSwift. This is Don Garlitz. I'll be your host today. I'm a Senior Vice President of Partnerships at BSwift. I'm joined by my co-host, Sharon Morrissey, who is a Business Development Manager at BSwift. Sharon, would you give our audience a bit of a synopsis of BeWise? Yeah, Don, absolutely. BeWise is a podcast about business learnings, and what we're really focused on is uncovering the changing tides in our industry and how companies throughout the marketplace are adapting. Well, Sharon, we have two special guests with us today. Delighted to have with us, uh, first of all, Mark Schmidt, who is the president and CEO of Maritain, a division of Aetna. Mark is from Tampa, Florida. He has five children and two grandsons. We're delighted to hear more about that maybe later on if he so chooses, but he was educated at DePaul University. Mark has about 37 years experience in this industry, so he's quite a veteran. He's been with Aetna for about 14 years. Prior to that, spent about 13 years with CoSource, 10 of which he was the president there. In his role today with Aetna, it's really over a group of companies, including Maritain Health, American Health Holding, First Health, and Aetna Signature Administrators, uh, among others. So we're delighted to have Mark on board today. Mark, glad you're with us. Thanks for having me. All right, great. His colleague, also from Maritain, is Michael Chiraki, who is the Chief Marketing Development Officer at Maritain Health. In his responsibilities, he's really got both a growth strategy and business development responsibility, as well as some oversight on client teams. But he has been with Aetna in various capacities for over 21 years now and has been with Maritain since 2011, and he's from Hartford, Connecticut. Michael, welcome aboard. Thanks, Don. It's great to be here. Well, gentlemen, I'm excited to hear and learn a little bit more about what you guys do in the marketplace today. It's such a fascinating market we're in. You know, as time marches on, cost becomes a bigger issue. And we're going to talk more about that later. But first, before we dive into all that, I want to understand essentially where's Maritain coming from and how did Maritain as a company make its way into the Aetna family of companies? Uh, Mark, would you give us a little briefing on that? Sure. Um, Back in 2011, uh, Aetna bought Maritain um, for what, at the time, we thought would be a lower-cost solution on a self-funded basis. And as Michael and I both have shared with uh, many colleagues over time, which what, what Aetna actually bought was a more flexible self-funded platform that's tailored for the TPA marketplace. And so if you have clients that are looking for a more flexible solution that brings in the best in class from their perspective, that's what Maritain sells. In the past, Aetna had been selling into that space, but basically we were selling a round peg into a square hole. And now basically what we have is a round hole and a round peg that fits better. And our success has been demonstrated by our growth over that period of time. But that's that's basically when uh, Maritain joined. It was back in 2000. And 11, and so we're coming up on our 10th anniversary. That's great. Suffice it to say that if you go typically to a, a typical insurance company, you're going to get a packaged up solution. And what Maritain's presenting the marketplace with is the ability to interchange different components of the plan, essentially. That's correct. And so what we look at it, uh, and Michael can probably expand on this a little more, but we look at, at the self-funded solution as an integrated solution. And we look at Maritains as an integrating, where we take what the client wants us to do or what they perceive meets their needs or best in class. Go ahead. Yeah, Mark, that's that's exactly right. And, and the great thing for 
for our customers is that they really do get the opportunity to select which of those different self-funded platforms makes the most sense for them. So they could decide whether or not they'd like to be uh, in that sort of fully integrated model uh, with the great solutions that we provide on the Etna side or from the Maritime perspective, we find a lot of customers who want to have very customized plan designs, who want to integrate other point solutions, um, who want a, a tremendous amount of control over their data. And so if that's the opportunity that, 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 that fits them and their organization uh, a little bit better, then that's certainly something that we can support uh, in, in either capacity. That's great. And it's great to have both options under the CBS umbrella, both Maritain and the Aetna solution. So I know we want to circle back to kind of how we relate up to CVS. But before we jump into that, Don mentioned in the beginning that medical plan costs just continue to rise and it continues to be a top concern for plan sponsors and employers all over the country. And I'm curious if you have um, any insights or thoughts around why costs continue to grow faster than we see inflation. Well, our observation is the same and certainly businesses uh, as they look to mitigate those types of costs are dealing with those realities as well. So so certainly that is true. You know, there's a number of different factors and some of them sort of ebb and flow in any given year, but generally speaking, number 1, we certainly have to acknowledge the uh right the impact of lifestyle. That's certainly one of the things contributing to the increase in those costs. We're also seeing the high cost of treating chronic illness, chronic disease, arthritis, cancer, heart disease, etc. The ways that we are treating those and the incidence rates that we're seeing around those is certainly rising as well. Finally, we're certainly seeing the impact of uh, high cost drugs, uh, prescription drugs with new medications coming out. And obviously, there's a real challenge there in that on the one hand, uh, the ability to make meaningful progress in in uh, health outcomes is certainly something that we need to embrace. And also recognizing that the cost of dealing with that treatment also creates challenges for those who are trying to find ways to finance for that. The other thing that we've noticed in particular recently is that historically, uh, you would deal with medical costs that might have been increasing above the cost of inflation. But what's unique about kind of the environment we're in right now is that not only is it general healthcare costs that are so expensive, but it's in many cases, it's the very, very high cost drugs or the very, very high cost claims that are driving that increase even more. So before, uh, when you would look at the rare types of cases, right, you might see $600,000, $700,000 that, that in extreme case, that would be as big as a claim gets. Well, now in, in sort of catastrophic circumstances, you can see them at five, six, seven, north of $8 million for those types of things. And so the reality is, is it's not just sort of the underlying cost of that care, but in some cases, the extreme costs of a, a very limited number of those types of catastrophic illnesses as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. and makes a lot of sense. I think many of our listeners, that message will resonate for them as to what they're struggling with in terms of controlling their cost. Wondering, guys, what would you suggest in terms of maybe some of the levers that a plan sponsor can pull to help with controlling cost? What are some of those things you guys focus on in the business? One of the things that we think is particularly important is making sure that you avoid strategies that really may look enticing to address one component of your costs of your plan. But as it turns out, many of those solutions, you end up just squeezing one end of the balloon and just sort of causing other costs to, to rise. And so um, one of the things that we encourage is to take as holistic a view as possible 
in terms of mitigating those costs. And, and that's certainly something that we strategize with our customers on on a, on a day-to-day basis. One of the other areas that I would encourage people to think about is uh, test and adjust strategies. So for instance, your ability to, to manage some costs in many cases could involve disruption to your membership and to your employee base. And so one of the things that we try and encourage our customers to think about is think in terms of three years and any kind of major change that you want to apply and try to use that first year really trying to educate your population. And then we think about the second year being more about offering reward for the behaviors that are improving the member's health while reducing total cost of care before the third year to make other types of changes that sort of incorporate both that carrot and stick approach. So in that way, you're you're working with your population to help balance their need to improve the health outcomes while, as an organization, reduce the total cost of care for them as well as for those financing it. So am I catching this right, Michael? You're basically saying when you're rolling out that strategy, you'd want to take a period of time to educate people, get them familiar with the concept, and then a period of time to set up a reward system to get them kind of buying in. And then after you've done those two steps, that's when you would hit with maybe more aggressive types of incentives, both in terms of carrots and sticks, essentially. That's exactly right, Don. And you know, while we tend to think about these things in terms of um, benefit strategy, it's not that different than the way we would think about any other type of corporate strategy that you would want to employ. Change management matters and the way that we communicate with our teams matter. And so the ability to over-communicate and over-educate on the front end to explain the why, the reason behind those types of changes. And then right, we look for the types of behaviors that we want to reward and incentivize. We, we look for those and we try and celebrate those near-term before we get into that stage of making sure that the support structures are there to not just reward, but put that stick approach in if necessary, only after that period of time of education has thoroughly worked itself through. That's great. That's super helpful to understand. When you're putting together these comprehensive strategies that are typically on a three-year timeline, when you're putting those strategies together for your employers, are you plugging in any kind of additional vendors or point solutions? Are there any vendors or point solutions that the customers should be considering as they are trying to make a strategy, uh, lower those costs? Yes, absolutely. And so one of the things that we try and do is sort of scan the environment of the healthcare space to look for those who are doing things that are innovative and who are looking for, whether it's a navigation firm, an advocacy firm, firms who are doing things uh, relative to second opinions, those types of solutions, we're certainly looking for them. And Mark, right, fair to say, one of the great things about being part of the CVS family is that not only can we pull in external solutions, but we can also pull in some of the solutions that our parent company has made available to us as well. Oh, clearly, without question, Michael. I mean, when we think about our PBM solutions that we offer with CVS being the lead one we have there, we think about even companies such as American Health Holdings from the care management side. These are ones that are proprietary to us and we have great knowledge of and can help them solve for the rising costs. And additionally, there are folks, uh, niche solutions that are out there that we can incorporate in, uh, whether it's an advocacy play or something like Simple Pay, which is one that we found uh, recently, which helps members uh, and guides members to the right cost solution inside. It's an all of the above solution is really how we go at it. And there are no perfect ones, but I think Michael would agree that we want to make sure we line up the right solution based off the client and the culture they have and 
what type of company they have because some of the solutions will be better off, for example, with uh, folks that are a little more tech savvy versus a little, some need a little more paternalistic touch. And so, Michael, maybe you could touch on that, how we yeah. try to guide them to the right solution for their company. No, that's true. So I'll give a for instance, we have some very large tech firms, and they would very much like to make sure that uh, they're spending as little interaction uh, as possible with phone calls. And so for in situations like that, many of the solutions that we work with, for instance, will ensure that customers and members who want to know, on average, where they can get their healthcare, and to understand the pricing of it, which is a continual challenge, we make sure that uh, we provide both an app and online services so that uh, members can be able to see that on their screens in whatever sort of mobile platform they'd like to see. In other situations, we have certain public entities, uh, those who serve older populations, and while they are absolutely becoming more tech savvy, it's just as vital for that population for us to be able to have a full suite of phone-based solutions for them as well. And so whether they're accessing it in a mobile environment, whether they're accessing it at a desktop, whether they're accessing in a phone call environment, it's it's really important for us uh, to be able to support those customers at whatever point of that journey that they're on. Otherwise, you're, you know, frankly, you're missing out on the value of being a third-party administrator, which is what we are, and and the flexibility and the nimble ability to for customers to sort of tailor whatever that service experience is going to look like for them is, is kind of missed. So we do really value that DNA of a TPA and look to find ways to continue to support that for the benefit of our customers. Yeah, I would add one last thing. And I think we, because we're so close to it, assume it. But the reality is the one thing we don't want to do is leave the members stuck in the middle somehow. And so, you know, with the pressure on cost that's out there, we see lots of solutions that come up that expose the member to costs or to outcomes that may not be idealistic. And so, one of the things that underpin all of our solutions is the at the network and the value of it and how it takes care of the member and make sure they're not exposed. And I think, you know, that's one of the things we try to guide our plan sponsors away from, which are plan ideas that might leave their members exposed. While they may save a lot of money, at the end of the day, you know, that one member is going to could get exposed and be left with financial hardship. And we, we work very hard to ensure we work with plan sponsors that you know, are aligned with us on that, and as well as we try to coach them away from it. This is very fascinating to me, you know, like all the parts and pieces you guys have put together. And, and Mark, one of the things that occurs to me, you know, you've been in this business for almost four decades, so you've got a wealth of knowledge and experience. And thinking about, as you just mentioned, Mark, trying to mitigate that risk to the individual consumer, that's got to be paramount in your thinking. But what I'm wondering is, you've got all this knowledge and, and experience with the management of risk. And I'm wondering if you could tell us or tell our listeners a little bit more about some of both the benefits and the risks of self-insuring. I mean, there's upside and there's downside potentially. Can you help walk us through that? Sure. And I, I know Michael will fill in the gaps because when you've been around for four decades, there become gaps. So anyway, <laughs> so, um, you know, I think the biggest advantage, two advantages for the self-funding are the flexibility where you get to set your design and really tailor it to what you believe are the right answers as a plan sponsor. And the other piece of it is really the administrative costs. They tend to be a little less expensive. You're not paying for lots of overhead. Um, and you get to pick the best in class solutions and not one that's bundled together. Now, that's just self-funding in general and a little bit on the TPA side. On the, the One of the risks are, 
if your company is per se in financial hardship, even though it may be cheaper, there's volatility in the risk that you have to cover. And so you may be better off with a fully insured plan where you have an absolute per member per month cost that you know that's all it's going to be. And so, you know, from my perspective, those are the two elements that I would balance off, right? You get the the savings and the flexibility with some uncertainty over how the plan will actually perform versus on the other side of the house, you can get absolute certainty, but you may not be getting the optimum expense outcome. But it depends on the situation that the plan sponsors in at the time. And I think, you know, years ago, it used to be cases were on the higher end above a couple hundred members per case. But now I think with the tools that are out there, we're able to go downstream and provide the security that the smaller employer may need. Um, so that's how I would weigh it out. Michael, what's your reaction? Yeah, you know, fundamentally, I would say the biggest shift that we've seen is when Mark started and, and certainly when I started in the industry, the idea of self-funding below, you know, several hundred employees was just sort of unheard of, right? There was there was no need to do that. But as medical costs continued to rise, as the regulation around insured business became more and more significant, employers felt like their ability to sort of tailor a plan that fit the needs of their populations, other plan sponsors and associations, et cetera, felt that a lot of those needs were really sort of, uh, they were really handcuffed for doing for their populations the unique things that they wanted, which is which is why I think self-funding continued to sort of expand past those edges. And the interesting thing now is that even though, as we talked about at the beginning, there are greater risks with high-cost claimants, the financial mechanisms to transfer risk from a self-funded plan sponsor are so much more vast than they used to be. And so whether it's traditional stop-loss or a captive arrangement, even in the case of Aetna, our parent company even makes available self-funded plans that go down to much smaller employee sizes because there are enough ways now of transferring that risk in a self-funded way back to protect the customer while at the same time making sure that the overall cost advantages of self-funding still exist. So it really has been sort of a remarkable shift over the last five to 10 years, just in terms of the fact that customers who historically would never consider self-funding now can give it much more thought from the perspective of, of having that protection without compromising all the benefits associated with it. That's fascinating. And I'm wondering, what I think we've heard earlier in the discussion here is that there's naturally some great pluses with respect to being a TPA. You know, like if someone's going to self-insure, why would they want to go to a TPA versus a traditional medical insurer? And I think what you've told us is that it's because you have all this flexibility to bring in all these third-party point solutions, which makes a lot of sense. Now, you mentioned a moment ago captives. Yeah. Could you tell us uh, exi- you know, a little bit about, like for some of our listeners, that it might not be all that up to speed on sure. what that is. Captives were traditionally the kind of the realm of the property and casualty world. You hear about sort of offshore captives and so forth, and uh, not really something that was considered in the mainstream. Captives have become a lot more typical in terms of medical captives, and and the way that they're used is at its purest level. And this is an oversimplification, but at its purest level, a captive is nothing more than sort of a micro insurance company, and they come together to basically self fund an additional layer of stop loss or reinsurance for uh, typically large claims for that employer. So typically what will happen is a captive manager is going to collect premium 
from a smaller group of members of that captive, right? So they're essentially members of that small insurance company that they banded together to form on their own. And they basically set the rules of the captives within the proper legal construct. And and the captive then pays stop-loss claims or the larger claims based upon whatever individual deductible levels that the captive has set and the customers have, have chosen to buy. And therefore, in a situation like that, where the captive does not pay out in excess of those premiums, it is the members of those captives who reap the benefits of that. And so in many ways, it's like uh, sharing and pooling your risk as a usually a smaller group that tends to work pretty well in those smaller group sizes. And again, a TPA, there are tend to be a, some fairly heavy data reporting elements to it. And a lot of captives like to have a lot of point solutions or cost containment mechanisms that are in place. TPS tend to lend themselves nicely to that uh, to that type of flexibility. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I would assume that it would be typical for a captive, even though they're sort of forming themselves to create reinsurance, they themselves would typically have reinsurance too for massively catastrophic claims. Yeah, yes, that's exactly right. Okay. So typically what's going to happen is the captive is going to cover claims up to a certain amount. I'll call them sort of mid-level, what we would call specific claims. So those are indiv- claims on, on individual claimants. And then reinsurance for those, as you say, Don, truly catastrophic events that the captive is not able and certainly wouldn't be advantageous to to go bear for, where they really need to have that kind of over-level protection. So again, as you see, what happens is this continued evolution where customers want to get the benefits of self-funding, but trying to minimize the, the risk that people would think about traditionally occurring in that kind of space. You know, it's such fascinating stuff, all the different options that employers have now. And I think they're lucky to have several different options and several different point solutions that will cater best to what they need um, for themselves and their population. So it's so interesting to hear how all of these different components plug and play for the employer. Um, As I mentioned in the beginning, I did want to circle back. We've talked a lot about our engagement with Aetna and and involvement with Aetna, uh, but Maritain is also now a subsidiary of CVS Health, and I'm curious what role Maritain plays in the larger enterprise strategy with CVS now. Being part of CVS has been, just like when we were purchased by Aetna, it's been a great opportunity to harness additional tools for the benefit of our customer. And frankly, some ones that we wouldn't have even sort of dreamed about prior to the acquisition. What's great about it, though, is we still have the ability to maintain our flexibility to leverage uh, not just our customization, but our ability to meet our clients where they are in terms of some of the outside solutions that they have. So again, when it comes to freedom of choice, our customers have the ability to decide what makes the most sense for them, whether it's um, leveraging the the sort of CVS health assets, the Aetna assets, the Maritain assets, uh, or bringing in some of their own solutions. So we, again, really sort of embracing that TPA DNA. But I mean, Mark, I, I'm, I'm sure we continue to see and, and look for additional ways that leveraging the, the assets that CVSL has, uh, bringing those to our customers has really benefited them as well, and as well as what's on the horizon. Well, uh, gentlemen, this has been a fascinating discussion. You know, I've learned some things here. What I've picked up today is that as a specialty solution within the CVS Health and Aetna families of companies, you've got a unique value proposition in that you're basically positioned as a TPA where you can go out and help clients put together the best self-funded insurance program using various 
point solutions, some of which could come from within the family of CVS Health and Aetna and some from without. You've got the ability to put together captives, as you described very elegantly, and really service employers, smaller scale employers, smaller employers and smaller groups of employers because of some of the unique products that have been developed over the years. I've heard you talk about the importance of managing cost and that really really fall into three big buckets. One would be lifestyle choices that the consumers are making. Another would be chronic illnesses you're trying to help manage. And then thirdly, high cost prescriptions. And one of the things that we heard from you today was the importance on avoiding those sort of myopic strategies where where you might go into a plan and think to tweak one thing, not realizing that it's going to affect another. So you really have to have that experience and vision to look at the what the overall impact of those things is going to be. And, and we've heard you describe the importance of when you do come up with a medical strategy and a cost reduction strategy, that you go through a sort of a process over a period of time to get employees engaged through education and then help them buy into the concept of rewards and then finally get to the more full-fledged incentives that you want them to have. But it's very difficult, I think you've described, to jump into that all at once and, and expect everybody to respond well to it. So all that experience, I think, has been very fascinating learning. Sharon, what have I missed? Yeah, Don, I thought that was a great summary. I think the only thing we'd love our listeners to know is how can they learn more about Maritain Health? Certainly, a broker or consultant should be able to help any plan sponsor employer who wants to learn a little bit more about TPAs and certainly through Maritain Health. But you could also go to our website at maritain.com. That's M-E-R-I-T-A-I-N.com and learn a little bit more about the types of solutions that we have. We've got some YouTube videos on there. We actually have podcasts of our own, which Don, we'd love to have uh, you all join us for as well and learn a little bit about how not only we're trying to help some of our customers, but some of the thought leaders who are coming up with some pretty creative ideas in, in the health space in order to help our, uh, our customers improve the, the outcomes for their members while reducing total cost of care. Well, I sure hope, gentlemen, that we're able to get some of our listeners interested in talking with you. Mark and, and Michael, thank you so much for your time. Our hope is that all of our clients on B-Swift all throughout the country can find the best solutions for their needs and perhaps some of them uh, will turn to Maritain for those solutions. So thank you very much for your time today. Great, thank you. That's a wrap for our episode today. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Be Wise wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share with friends and colleagues. I'm Sharon Morrissey. And I'm Don Garlitz. And on behalf of B Swift, thanks for listening to Be Wise. Be Wise.